Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffress. Dr. Jeffress is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffress. You may remember the date of October the 14th, 1987, when an 18-month-old girl named Jessica McClure was playing in her aunt's backyard in Midland, Texas, and accidentally fell into an abandoned well. For the next 58 year, 58 hours, they seemed like years, <laughs> but I remember watching it on television, everybody's eyes were glued to the television set in that dramatic rescue effort of baby Jessica. This week, I pulled up an interview that was done 10 years after that rescue effort with Jessica McClure and her mom. Obviously, Jessica didn't remember what had happened to her as an 18-month-old. Just imagine her mom trying to explain to her the drama of that ordeal. Jessica, you were trapped in a 20-foot pit. You were alone without food and without water and with little hope of rescue. We could hear you singing Winnie the Pooh and Jesus Loves Me to comfort yourself. But then the rescuers drilled a 29-foot vertical shaft next to the abandoned well, and two men made their way down that shaft, and they attached you to a board, and they lifted you up out of the pit, and the whole world cheered when they heard the good news. You know, in many ways, that's an apt description of what God has done for us. We were all trapped in that pit of sin with no hope of rescue. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, Paul describes our condition. He says that we were spiritually dead. We couldn't even respond to any rescue attempt. We were not only dead, we were depraved. We were doomed to suffer the wrath of God forever. We had no hope for now or the future. But God, verse 4 says, God intervened in our situation, and he formulated the most dramatic rescue attempt ever made when he sent his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and die for our sins. And when he did that, he performed a miracle. He resurrected us, made us able to respond. Not only did he resurrect us, but he reinstated us to be children of God, and he raised us to live in a whole new realm, not in the realm of sin, but of righteousness. And why did God do all of this? One word, grace. For by grace you have been saved. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he has made us alive together in Christ. Now, We have come to verse 8 of that description, and Paul is going to circle around once again and hit upon the motivation for God in saving us. We read the passage just a few moments ago, but for those who have just joined us, let me read the passage we're looking at today, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus 
for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. In these three verses, we find what I call the most three important words in the entire Bible. And the reason they're the three most important words is they answer the question, how can we be in a right relationship with God? The three words are grace, faith, and works. And there are three simple statements I want to write down on your outline, I want you to write down. First of all, Paul tells us how we are saved. We are saved by grace. For by grace, you have been saved. He doesn't say we are saved by faith. We are saved by grace. Grace, what does it mean? We just sang about it, amazing grace. What is grace? Well, you can try to explain grace by a dictionary definition. The Greeks used the word charis that we translate grace to refer to that inexplicable quality that draws one person to another person. Other times it was used to describe the paying off of a debt. Somebody lends money, they realize the borrower has no hope of ever repaying, so the lender forgives the debt for no reason other than grace. Tetelestai is the Greek word paid in full that Jesus uttered in John 19.30 on the cross when he said, it is finished, tetelestai, paid in full, all because of grace. But I think the definition that best fits this passage is the one that is very simple. What is grace? It's an undeserved burst of generosity. An undeserved, inexplicable burst of generosity. It's the generosity that we saw last time when that social worker in London, Henry Morehouse, saw the little 10-year-old girl carrying a pitcher of milk, a pitcher that fell out of her hands and shattered, and she was uh, so grieved over it, thinking she would be punished. And Henry Morehouse took her down to the crockery shop and brought her a new pitcher and filled it with milk. Why did he do it? He didn't have anything to gain by doing it. It was that compassion, that undeserved burst of generosity. It is by grace we have been saved. God's undeserved burst of generosity to meet a need we could never meet. Another way to understand grace is not just by dictionary definition, but by contrast. What grace is not. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works. Grace is the opposite of works. You know, if you were to go out after this service and stop 100 people on the streets of downtown Dallas and ask them this question, how do you go to heaven when you die? What do you have to do? 99 out of 100% of those people would answer something having to do with their works, something they could do to earn eternal life. And it's easy to understand why people think that. We condemn people who think that, but it's easy to understand why we think we have to work to earn our salvation. Because every other thing in life that is of value is something that we usually have to work for. I mean, we're taught from an early age that if you study hard in school, you get a good grade, right? Later in your work life, if you work hard, you get a raise or you get a promotion. If you're an athlete and you train hard and work hard, uh, you win the championship and later a $20 million signing bonus for a pro team. Uh, there is a reward for our efforts. We would normally then think that salvation is something that we would earn. And that's what a lot of people have done throughout history. They've tried to earn God's forgiveness through 
self-sacrifice or self-abuse. Hindus would lie on a bed of nails. Uh, I think about Martin Luther, the leader of the Reformation, before he was saved, was a Catholic priest. He thought he had to earn God's forgiveness by self-flagellation. He would whip himself before he would go to bed and lie in a pool of his own blood every night. You have mothers standing on the banks of the Ganges rivers, throwing their babies into the mouths of hungry crocodiles, thinking they could appease the angry gods by making that kind of sacrifice. We don't do things like that today, but we do similar things. We think if we sacrifice enough, we can earn heaven. Remember about five years ago, Warren Buffett, one of the richest men in the world, at that time, his worth was $44 billion, made the announcement that he was going to give 85% of his wealth to charity. In commenting on his action, he says, there is more than one way to heaven, but this is a great way. Boy, is he in for a rude awakening one day. A lot of people think they can earn their way into heaven through religious rituals, getting baptized, taking communion, going to a church, but God says, no, it is not of works. Why does God refuse to allow us to earn our way to heaven? The Scripture gives two reasons. First of all, we are unable to earn eternal life. We're incapable of earning heaven. Let me explain it this way to you. A lot of people compare their, themselves to other people to see how good they are on God's scale of righteousness. But Acts 17.31 says there is only one standard by which any of us is judged, and that is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is the standard. The late expositor of Scripture, Donald Gray Barnhouse, used this illustration. Have you ever seen one of those old-fashioned balance scales that have weights on both sides of it? used to be when you'd go to the grocery store and you wanted to buy a commodity that uh, the grocer would use that balance scale to measure out how much you wanted. On the left-hand side, let's say there's a one-pound weight. And if you wanted a pound of sugar, he would pour the sugar on the other side until it balanced out. Then he knew he had a pound of sugar. Well, just imagine God has a righteousness scale. And on the left-hand side of the scale is his full righteousness, one pound of righteousness that's required to get to heaven. And so we come and we offer our righteousness to try to balance out what God commands. First of all comes the drug dealer and the child molester, and they try to offer the best they have to God. And because of their despicable condition, they only have a couple of feathers worth of righteousness to offer. It doesn't even register on the scale you and I can come proudly and say, well, we've got more righteousness than that. We work for the United Way. We attend church. We got baptized. Certainly, our righteousness counts, and it registers at six ounces on the scale. And then comes the true saints of history, people like Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, and they're able to offer 12 ounces of righteousness. The only problem is nobody has enough, has 16 ounces, a pound of righteousness. And that's why Romans 3.10 says, there is not one righteous person among us, no, not even one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The fact is, we are unable to earn eternal life no matter how hard we work. But there's a second reason God doesn't allow us 
to earn our salvation. He's unwilling to allow us to earn our salvation. We're not only incapable, unable to earn it, God is unwilling to allow us to earn it. Why? If it's of works, it's something we can boast about. Remember, Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Just think about it. If you and I played any role in our salvation, think what a miserable place heaven would be. Because you know all we would do is go about bragging to one another what we did to get there. What did you do to get to heaven? Well, this is what I did. Well, what did you do? This is what… It'd be one eternal bragamony. Who would want to endure that? But there's not going to be any boasting in heaven. If we boast about anything, it's going to be about the graciousness, the compassion of God in saving us. You see, and this is a key point, if salvation is something we work for, then salvation is not a gift from God. It's an obligation that God owes us. Paul explains that in Romans chapter 4. Hold your place here and turn to Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. The book of Romans was written to mainly Jewish Christians. And Paul was explaining how we are saved by grace and not through works. And the Jewish Christians would normally ask, well, what about Abraham? He's the father of our nation. He's the George Washington of Israel. Look at all the good things he saved. Wasn't he saved by works? Look at what Paul says beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? How was Abraham made righteous? Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Remember in Genesis 15, God made that unconditional promise to Abraham, and the Bible says Abraham believed what God said, and at that moment, God took Abraham's little bit of faith, and in the great accounting room of heaven, he exchanged that tiny bit of faith for the righteousness of God. And we're saved the same way when we trust in Christ to be our Savior. doesn't matter how much or how little faith we have, whatever amount we have, even as tiny as a mustard seed, God can take that faith and exchange it for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But then he explains in Romans 4, 4, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as to what is due. Think about this. You may get paid on the 15th and 30th of every month. When you get your paycheck, do you go down and throw yourself before your boss and say, oh, thank you so much. This is such a gracious thing for you to do. It would never enter my mind that you would think to give me such a gift. How many of you do that? Your boss would think you had lost your mind if you did that. Your wage is not a gift. It's an obligation. You had a contract. If you work and do this, 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 and this, he pays you. It's just a transaction. It's an obligation. But think about it. If we work for our salvation, our salvation isn't a gift. It's nothing to thank God for. It's something he owes us. And ladies and gentlemen, God is unwilling to owe any man or woman salvation. It is a gift. And that's why in verse 5, Paul says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. 
We are saved by grace. Charles Haddon Spurgeon in his devotional mornings and evenings has a great word about this. Listen to this carefully. He said, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you, it is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you, it is Christ. It is not even your faith in Christ, although that's instrumental, it is Christ's blood and merit that save you. Therefore, do not look so much to your hand with which you are grasping Christ as to Christ. Do not look to your hope, but to Jesus, the source of your hope. Do not look to your faith, but to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of your faith. Ladies and gentlemen, the only way any of us can be saved is when we quit trying to lay our feathers of righteousness on God's scale of righteousness and instead trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ to save us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When we trust in Christ for our salvation, God no longer looks at our unrighteousness. He sees us as having the same righteousness as his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In that balancing scale, no longer do we place our feathers of pseudo-righteousness, but we place the righteousness of Jesus himself, and God pronounces us forgiven. That's what Christianity is. It's a religion. It is a relationship with God that is built on grace, not works. The great expositor of Scripture of yesteryear, G. Campbell Morgan, was once asked a question perhaps you've wondered about. He was asked, how is it that you can explain the thousands and thousands of religions in the world? Why are there thousands of religions in the world? And Morgan responded, there aren't thousands of religions in the world. There aren't even hundreds of religions in the world. There are only two religions in the world. The first religion, which is every other religion except Christianity, is spelled D-O. Do this, do this, do this, keep this list of regulations, and you might have eternal life. Different religions have different lists, but it all requires D-O. Do this, do this, do this. Christianity is the only religion in the world that is spelled D-O-N-E, done. It has all been done by Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's why Paul said, for by grace you have been saved. But there's a second important word, not only grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. We are saved by grace, but we are saved through faith. That's what he says in verse 8. By grace you have been saved through faith faith. Now, some people point out, and rightly so, that this word translated through, the preposition dia, can mean by as well as mean through. And uh, that's a very true observation. But if you want to translate it by, Paul is saying, for by grace you have been saved by faith. Faith is in the secondary position. It is indirect agency, whereas grace is direct agency. We are saved by grace that comes to us through faith. Perhaps this illustration will help you understand the difference between the two. Hopefully, in the last week, you have felt the need to take a shower or a bath. 
In fact, why don't you sniff the person next to you and see if they actually did that or not. Now, there's at some point that you needed to be cleansed. <laughs> you needed to feel clean. Now, what's the important ingredient in taking a bath or a shower that you have to have to be clean? Water. Now, we need water to be clean. The only problem for most of us, the water we need isn't in our house automatically. It's blocks away in a water tower or miles away in a water treatment center or behind in a lake behind a dam somewhere. The waters that were there, I'm here. Somehow I've got to get that water to myself. How does that happen? Happens through the pipes. The pipes are the delivery system that connect me to the solution to my need for cleansing water. Would anybody ever say, I am cleansed by pipes? No. I am cleansed by water that comes through the pipes. Would anybody say, boy, when I was thirsty, I was so glad I found a great clean pipe? No. The pipe doesn't satisfy your thirst. The water does, but the water comes through the pipes. Now, that's exactly what Paul is saying here. We are saved by grace that comes into our life through faith. And by the way, our faith is only as good as the object of our faith. Uh, some people have a lot of faith. They are sincere in their faith, but they're sincerely wrong. Uh, the reliability of your faith is only as good as the object of your faith. I was reading this week the story of Jacques Lowe. He was for many years the official photographer for the Kennedy family. And he had over 40,000 negatives of pictures he had taken of JFK and his family. And if a magazine or book wanted a photograph, they would have to license it, get it through Jacques Lowe. And he had his invaluable collection stored six blocks away at a local bank. And whenever somebody requested the um, uh, picture, he would go to the bank, take the negative out, have the picture printed, and then return the negative uh, to the bank vault. His daughter, Thomasina, said, my father was being more prudent than most. He really believed they were safe as they could ever be. He kept them in a vault six blocks from his studio because he felt psychologically if they were under his bed. The only problem was the bank he kept his negatives in was the J.P. Morgan Chase Bank located at Five World Trade Center. This nine-story building was completely demolished after the terrorist attacks on September 11th, leaving his 40,000 negatives nothing but a heap of ashes. I mean, he had the belief that his negatives were safe. He thought they were safe. He sincerely believed it. But the object of his faith wasn't as secure as he thought it was. Ladies and gentlemen, let me ask you a very important question. What are you trusting in to gain entrance into heaven when you die? What are you trusting in? You may sincerely believe that you're good enough to get into heaven. You may sincerely believe that when you were sprinkled as a baby, that was all it took. You can be sincere, but you can be sincerely wrong. The only trustworthy object of our faith is Jesus Christ to believe that when he died, he took the punishment that we deserve. 
We are saved by grace that we receive through faith. Well, Pastor, are you saying works have nothing to do with our salvation? No, far from that. Works are very important in the salvation equation as long as you have them in the right order. We are saved by grace. We are saved through faith. And thirdly, write down, we are saved for good works. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Then verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created under Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace, but we are saved for good works. We aren't saved by good works. We're saved for good works. Once we become a Christian, good works are vitally important in a Christian's life. Why are they important? Paul mentions two reasons, as does the rest of Scripture. First of all, our good works glorify God. When Paul writes, for we are his workmanship, that word workmanship is the Greek word poema. We get our word poem from it. Did you know you're God's poem to the world? He saved you for a purpose. His purpose for your life didn't end with your salvation. It just begins with your salvation. He's creating a beautiful tapestry, a beautiful poem that will attract other people to himself. When people see your willingness to forgive, your peace in the midst of turmoil, your total trust in God, your kindness to those who wrong you, when people see that, they're naturally attracted to the God who made you the way you are. And that's why in Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your what? Good works and therefore glorify your Father who is in heaven. I like the way one writer puts God's plan for our life. He said, from God's sovereign seat, he foresaw us resting in his protection, boldly taking a stand against evil, compassionately extending a hand to the needy, and lovingly sharing the gospel every time he gives us a chance. God's plan for our lives extends beyond salvation to sanctification, beyond standing in grace to walking in good deeds. Our good works glorify God. But secondly, good works are important in order to verify our salvation. Good works don't produce spiritual life, but they prove there is spiritual life. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 3, verse 8? He said, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Therefore, verse 10, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. If you have a tree that's not producing fruit, it's dead and it deserves to be cut down. So it is with a Christian. It's not that a Christian loses his salvation because he doesn't bear fruit. If he doesn't bear fruit, it simply shows he never was a Christian to begin with, just consider this example. Just imagine that I keep bragging to you about this beautiful apple tree that Amy and I have in our backyard, and I invite you to come over and see it one day. And so one Saturday afternoon in October, you come over, and I take you out proudly to show you my apple tree, and there's not an apple on it anywhere. And you say, Pastor, this is the time you ought to be growing apples on your apple tree. There's not a tree anywhere. I'm afraid your apple tree is dead. I say, dead? 
How could you insult me like that? What a terrible thing to say. This apple tree is alive. You say, well, then where are the apples? I say, oh, well, just wait just a moment. I run up to Tom Thumb grocery store. I get some apples. I come back, and I tie them onto the dead twigs of that dead apple tree. Say, now, here, it's alive. Here are the apples. Well, that's silly. Apples don't produce life, but they prove that there's life. Tying apples onto a dead tree doesn't make the tree any more alive than tying good works on a spiritually dead person makes him alive in Christ. Fruit is the proof of life. Fruit doesn't produce life. It is the fruit of life. And so it is with a Christian. You know, Martin Luther believed very much in the doctrine of we are saved by faith alone, but in describing the relationship between faith and works, he said this, faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. Where there is genuine faith, there is always going to be spiritual fruit. And that's what Paul says. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. And our good works not only glorify our Father in heaven, they verify our salvation. You know, one of the best illustrations of the relationship between faith and works is seen in that Academy Award-winning movie, Saving Private Ryan. You remember the movie? It was loosely based on a true story about a family that had four sons serving in World War II. Three of them had been killed in action And the government had a policy to do everything possible to save that fourth son from being killed, Private Ryan. So they enlist Tom Hanks, a captain, to go behind the enemy lines to try to find and save Private Ryan. And the movie is all about the heroic uh, exploits and the sacrifices that were made. And remember the final scene of the movie, Private Ryan stumbles over the Tom Hanks character who's been mortally wounded at this point. And Tom Hanks looks up at Private Ryan. He looks around at all the devastation around him that had been caused by the rescue effort. And Tom Hanks utters the two final words of the movie, earn this. Earn this. What was he saying to Private Ryan? What do you mean to earn this? Was his rescue something that he earned? No. This rescue effort went on without Private Ryan's knowledge of it, much less his effort in it. He wasn't saying there was anything the private could have done to earn his rescue, but he was saying, look at the cost that has been paid for your rescue. Now you go live your life in a way that's worthy of the sacrifice that has been made on your behalf. And that's what God says to us. Walk now in a way that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Why? Because for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created by Christ Jesus unto good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's bow together in a word of prayer.
Salvation is by grace, but it must be received through faith. God doesn't force his gift on anyone. A gift's not a gift unless it's received. John 1.12 says, but as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Today, if you would like to receive God's unconditional gift of forgiveness, if you're willing to say, I put my faith in Jesus and Jesus alone to save me from my sins. If today you're ready to receive that gift, I want to invite you, wherever you are, here in our worship center, watching this broadcast, listening to this program, if you're willing to receive that gift, pray this simple prayer with me. Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know that I have failed you in so many ways, and I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe what I've heard today, that you love me so much, you sent your son Jesus to die for me. And right now I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me, not in my good works, but in what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins. Thank you for forgiving me. And help me to live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.